Dr. Hillard. Happy New Year. It's nice to have you on our podcast Thank you very much. today. It's good to be doing the podcast again. <laughs> We've had a bit of a hiatus, but we're back at That's it. That's right. So, so today is our October podcast. And um, I know we had initially uh, talked about reading The Emperor of All Maladies. I believe that's the proper title. Um, it and is. And it has a subtitle, which I love, which is called A Biography of Cancer. And oh, yeah, it's by Siddhartha. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful concept. Siddhartha Mukherjee. And uh, it... it, it uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize and Ken Burns did a documentary and it's just such a, a wonderful book. It's, it's a very long book and that's why it's taken, uh, taken uh, me a long time to finish it. And I'm going to be very pointed, Nicole, have you finished the book? <laughs> um, no, I have not finished this book because I got this new job. <laughs> actually not all of our listeners may know that dr tyson has joined us at stanford so she is now has moved from uh, kaiser and is now with us at stanford we are delighted to have you nicole and uh, yeah, i think it's a good you. excuse because it's hard to, <laughs> to take a new job <laughs> i know now i have to fess up like on the podcast that no i didn't finish the book and sadly there's no movie or cliff notes or anything so but i do love the book and i'm about i don't know a third to a halfway through and it is it's wonderful to read i love it so i'm going it to is finish pretty it dense. it's pretty dense it has a lot of of the history of cancer um, that I was not aware of. And I really enjoyed sort of following those threads about where we were really over the course of my career. Now, I'm older than most of the listeners to the podcast. Um, so my career is a little bit longer. But, <laughs> but um, it was fascinating to me to realize how much of this history and biography of cancer is pretty recent as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's beautifully written. So it's really easy and fun to read. I mean, even though it's a, it's a heavy topic, it's actually quite enjoyable to read. It is. It is. So, so we, I will get we recommend it when I'm when I'm more adapted to uh, my new place. But I'm glad to be here too, Dr. <laughs> of course. Thank you. So um, we will just dive into some of the articles we wanted to talk about today. Do we, before we do that, do we want to briefly mention a book that I just mentioned oh, to you absolutely. that we may want to do in a future podcast? Absolutely. So, Sorry, I forgot. Let's do no, that. No, that's all right. Um, I, this is a book that was recommended to me by my daughter and it's by Isabel uh, Allende and it's called Eva Luna and it's magical realism and i'm i've just picked it up and started it and i'm having a hard time putting it down and the the words are are so lush and the the writing is is just wonderful and i wanted to pick it up because after the events of last week i just didn't want to think about politics for a bit and so i it's a bit of escapism so I, I would recommend it. I've just recommended it to, um, to you, Nicole, and I would, uh, I would recommend it to our listeners as well. And we will talk about it in the future. Absolutely. I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. 
Um, so perfect. Thank you for the recommendation. And escape book sounds absolutely perfect. The first thing I said when we connected was nothing political. So we're all we're all in line to get something <laughs> we're fun good. like this. We're good to escape. Yes. We are here today with a guest podcaster, Dr. Elise Berlin from Nationwide Children's in Columbus, Ohio. We're talking today about her article in the October edition titled Best Practices for Counseling Adolescents about the Etonorgestrel Implant. Uh, she is our uh, lead author on this article, and she co-authored it with Dr. Molly Richards, Carolina Vieira, Mitch Crannon, Andrew Kunitz, Ian Frazier, Allison Edelman, and Diana Mansour. So quite a great group of collaborators, um, and we're so lucky to have Dr. Berlin on our call today. Thank Why you, you um, Dr. Tyson article. and Dr. Hillard, so much for the opportunity to come on your podcast. It's an honor. Um, and this article was a lot of fun to write. It was um, really great to collaborate with all of these, um, you know, eminent folks in family planning. Um, we decided to write the article because there was really a sense that there, people were struggling with how to counsel younger women and girls about using the contraceptive implant and in particular were there you know special kind of um pointers that we had and really practice-based recommendations that one might not find in a more scholarly review but were really from um, the experience of people who did a lot of this work perfect yeah definitely a, a void that needed to be filled so this was a great great article um, just sort of summarizing in a nutshell, how do you feel counseling adolescents is different than adults? Like what, you you know, what's unique and I have spent a lot of time thinking them. about this. And I think there are a lot of things that make um, counseling adolescents different than older women. Um, and even when we think about adolescents, we have differences among them, right? So our our younger adolescents are going to be really um, probably different than counseling, you know, an 18, 19 year old versus counseling even um, a 25 year old. So, you know, one of the things um, that we talk about in the article is just being really aware of what the unique developmental needs are of the patient that we're talking to. And also really how involved does she want her parent or guardians to be um, in that um, conversation? Um, a couple other things I wanted to point out, you know, compared to older women, adolescents have or may have very little knowledge about their body and their reproductive organs. They might not know very much about sexuality. They've had less experience with their periods, with childbirth, with sexual activity. So they don't have this um, kind of library of personal experiences that adult women may have and that um, those experiences really can help um, in uh, guide a conversation. Um, adolescents and younger users tend to rely on their friends and family um, experiences with contraceptive to help inform them of what methods they want to be open to, uh, which may be a little different than older women. And then 
you know, just the techniques that we use for older women that um, I think many of us are really moving much more to shared decision-making. There are just some nuances that we may want to consider with younger patients who aren't as experienced. Yeah, absolutely. It is it's sort of like a whole different realm if yeah. you're counseling a 14-year-old versus a 24-year-old. May I just make a brief like comment here? That sometimes <laughs> the other thing to consider, which isn't so much addressed in, in the article, but I think is worth keeping in mind, sometimes we're, con we're counseling about these hormonal methods for young teens who are using the method, the hormonal method for menstrual issues or not for contraception. And that's the one big difference that I find with the family planning community. They're very used to speaking to teens about contraception, but not always keeping in mind that contraception may not be a current issue of the teen that they're talking with but they may be choosing hormonal management for menstrual related problems. Dr. Hillard, that is such an excellent point. I'm so glad you brought it up. Um, I have been thinking about that and, and, and pu currently putting together one of my talks for um, the NASPAG meeting um, with Dr. Kotke. And we were talking about how often, to your point, we talk about contraceptives in a clinical uh, setting with adolescents and it's so much of the time it's not for a per se contraceptive counseling visit yeah. it just comes up um, as a way to offer care uh, and treatment for young women with their um, menstrual problems so it's it's really something that if you take care of adolescent girls and young women you're likely to talk about it a lot I, I agree. And so just something for listeners to keep in mind. Absolutely. That is such a great point, both of you. I mean, I think that was one of the, the things that we wanted to definitely bring up in this conversation mm -hmm. is all of the non-contraceptive <laughs> benefits of Nexplanon. Um, so Dr. Berlin, how do you sort of approach that with the with the patients with needing birth control or not needing birth control? How do you incorporate that in your counseling? I really try to understand what the patient's is, what what is the patient looking for? Is her primary interest to have a really effective contraceptive? Is her primary interest a treatment for a gynecologic problem? Does she primarily just want to suppress her periods? for one or the other reasons. Um, so I think really kind of before you get to the decision-making part of the conversation, really doing your best to understand what her priorities are can really help that conversation. One of the, one of the learnings that I've had as a clinician though, is that younger um, patients may not have the vocabulary and be able to understand what they can change. So sometimes we might need to ask them a little bit more and offer them more um, in terms of what is possible. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think you brought up in the article, or I know we've talked about this before when we've done some talks together, is trying to figure out what's the, yeah. the thing they're scared of or what's the elephant in the room. And I think you allude to that in this yeah. article as well. Um, 
So I think one of the things that's always really important to talk about whenever we are reading about Nexplanon and mm-hmm. counseling uh, is <laughs> vaginal bleeding. So <laughs> the elusive vaginal bleeding. So ha- I think in the face of Nexplanon, I think that's really what a lot of learners um, and listeners to this podcast really want to know um, to even increase the utilization of Nexplanon more. Um, so can you elaborate a little bit more yeah. on the, the changes well, in I'll, Maybe I'll talk about it from the angle of using it as a treatment for a gynecologic problem, as well as kind of straight on contraceptive. You know, for my patients who I'm using it as an example for dysmenorrhea, we address that in the paper that it's really a very effective treatment for menstrual cramps. I may ask my patient, how important is it to her to have a regular monthly bleed? And if she says to me, you know, that's the most important thing to me. Then I may not consider Nexplanon to be the best matched for her, um, her, her problem. However, if she says to me, you know, Dr. Berlin, I hate my cramps. I don't care. I just want to, you know, get rid of them. Um, in that setting, you know, I'm, I feel much more comfortable kind of talking to her about the treatment options, which include Nexplanon. And then really describing what the bleeding pattern is. Yeah, no, I think that good. all of those are, are reasonable things to, to consider and to, to determine what really is the most important thing to, to your patient is, is the goal. Excellent. Um, and then what do, you, what do you think you do or how do you approach kind of anticipatory counseling? In every situation where you're thinking um, and counseling a patient about Nexplanon, it is really important to talk to her about the changes that she may have in her um, vaginal bleeding. Um, And I tend to not even call it periods anymore. I've really kind of moved away from that language, but really letting her know that her bleeding pattern is going to change. um, And that is a side effect of the next plan on. I have found the best word or language to me is using unpredictable as kind of what I talk about with the changes. I say your, you know, your bleeds um, are going to change and um, it is unpredictable what they will be like. You might not have any bleeding at all. You might have more days of bleeding than your period. um, And it may be somewhere in between. And is that okay with you? Um, If they say, Like if they give the affirmative, then I'll talk a little bit more about um, the particulars. I think it's really important to let them know that if they're unhappy with the bleeding, that as the provider, you are very happy to remove it um, and not provide any barriers to removal. Exactly. Yeah, that's a super good point. I was going to bring that up. So thank you. I mean, I think that's something that we have to do more and more with adolescents with all larks is just because they get it, it doesn't mean they have to keep it. And we have to be able to assure them that right when they want it out. Yeah. That we will be. I love what Dr. Berlin said in terms of saying to your patient that your bleeding will change, (laughs) not that it might change because teens have this, you know, the personal fable and magical (laughs) thinking that it's not going to happen to them. So if you say it might change, Mm then they're thinking it's not going to happen to me. And I was taught years ago by a wonderful adolescent nurse practitioner that she just always told patients, your bleeding will change. 
And that was that was way long before uh, Implanon, Nexplanon. That was that was way back in the the Norplant mm -hmm. and the depomedroxyprogesterone acetate days. Um, but it, it it equally applies. So saying that it will change. I love that you say that, Elise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, and what about the issue of bone density? I think that's kind of a unique topic that comes up in the face of counseling Nexplanon versus You know, we haven't seen in any of the studies that have been done that um, there is any impact on bone density. It, it has a different mechanism than um, Depo-Provera. And so I think that is some, it's something that I did hear quite a bit in the earlier days of Implanon and Nexplanon. Um, but I think it is really something that we can reassure patients that it, it's not a concern with this method. Excellent. And then what about the question of, will this help um, me you not know, make ovarian cysts? I would say that some users of the method, a, a small minority, do have um, what I would call functional cysts. So generally small cysts that don't cause any problems that resolve um, on their own, generally. Um, so, so cysts can happen, but they are unlikely to be problematic. And I just let them know um, if they're having any symptoms to let me know. And we'll certainly do our, um, our assessment and treat them accordingly. But it shouldn't be um, a problem with this method. Perfect. And then what about the, the speaking of the elephant in the mm -hmm. room that I brought up, um, how do you counsel patients about sort of their, their concerns about right. deconsertion or problematic yeah. removals or the scary, yes. scary things they hear yes. and read you know, on the So I think, in it, I think a lot of patients <laughs> are worried about loss of autonomy, as we talked about a little earlier. So providing reassurance that you'll remove it if they want to for any reason. Um, and secondly, this concern about, you know, a serious health risk. Um, so, so the good news, as um, our listeners may know, is that this method is exceedingly safe, right? Very much um, more safe than combination hormonal contraceptives. And the problems with deep insertion are exceedingly rare. So, you know, my position would be to um, certainly when you're doing um, your informed consent, um, but sometimes earlier, to share with the patient that serious adverse events can happen but are very rare and to let them know if they have any concerns that you want them to um, let you know about them so you can assess it. Um, one of the things that's recommended after the implant is placed is that the provider as well as the patient feel it. And what I tell patients is we're gonna feel it together and we're going to know that it's properly placed before you leave this office. And sometimes I think just saying that really does help them. That's actually a good tip. I like that. And then I guess as we wrap up, do you have any other thoughts or comments about your um, paper that you definitely want to share with us? I wanted to share something that has been something that has been an evolution for me with regards to contraceptive counseling um, and just patient care in general that I think about um, because it has to do with agency and the position of me as the healthcare provider. But I do let my patients know that they're the boss. <laughs> and I think this paper gets to that as well. You know, that um, I tell them explicitly <laughs> it, when I first meet them, I say, you know, my job is to care for you. 
um, to counsel you, to advise you, and you're going to make the decisions and I'm going to do my best to help you make the right decision for you today. But, um, but your job is to make the decisions. Um, and I, I do think that being explicit about that in the beginning may really help young people know that that's their right and that this, they should expect that in their reproductive health care journey moving forward. I just love that this um, article gave lots of examples of words that you could use. So particularly for learners who are just starting to counsel patients about the implant, there are lots of suggestions for ways that this could be described to a team. And I, I love it that the article gave that. It's a great one. Well done. Thank Dr. you Brennan. both. We, we um, I, 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 I'm really glad you know, <laughs> we really wanted this to be a very practical piece. And I think um, our figure about bleeding, we really hope that that would um, help uh, providers counsel their patients about the changes they would expect. So if any of the readers haven't seen it, we would just love for them to take a look at that. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you. And we'll <laughs> Sounds to, good. Uh, talking thank to you about the next article, Dr. Berman. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Okay. So now let's dive into these fun articles from the October edition. And I think I'm just going to segue into um, you talking about Dr. Barrow's article, because I know you had a lot to say about that and was close to your heart. Oh, this is, this is another from my good friend and colleague, Dr. Frank Barrow and his colleagues on puberty. And of course, um, the multi-center trial that uh, he spearheaded and, and Cincinnati was a, a center um, on following girls through puberty, really, in the pathways of puberty. But the, I love the title of this one. It's called Onset of Puberty, Mother Knows Best. And just a, a couple of sentences. Um, this is not earth shattering, but I absolutely love it. What they found was that they asked mothers at what age they believed that their daughter's shoe size had increased more rapidly. <laughs> and moms knew the answer to that, and it correlated very well with the uh, clinician-documented onset of puberty. And they, they say that the, the age of the shoe size increase was about a half a year before breast development. I, I think of a description that some of my colleagues in adolescent medicine uh, gave to me years and years ago about teenagers and their growth, their physical growth, being like puppies, that they end up having <laughs> big feet and hands <laughs> and so, <laughs> so a true. little bit out of, out of proportion. And I think this article must have, have resonated with me because I have a distinct memory of being in the third grade at age eight and I had, my feet were huge, that my feet were the same size they are now, a size nine. And that's a big shoe size for an eighth grader, <laughs> for an eight-year-old, for an eight-year-old. For an eight-year-old, yeah, absolutely. That's so that was, that was the prelude to my onset of, of puberty. So I love it. And so it's not earth shattering again, but, you know, something to keep in mind as we uh, try to help our, our patients and their moms remember uh, when puberty began. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great article. Um, and then I think we uh, wanted to touch base just on one article. Well, actually a couple, but one I think is just something we'll touch base briefly on because mostly it's just to highlight something to think about 
as we work with this younger population. Um, so the article titled The Prevalence of Children and Adolescents at Risk for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder in Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology Clinics. And I think I, I'm going to leave that to you too, Dr. Hiller, because I think you felt sort of passionate about publishing this article and, and some valid points that we should be thinking about um, in our PAD clinic and, and perhaps for our trainees who work with us as well. Well, I think my colleagues in adolescent medicine, and particularly here at Stanford, where they have such a, a well-known eating disorders program, um, ARFID is just their bread and butter, um, left, right, and up and down, and, and they know to look for it, and they see it um, appropriately in a lot of places. But those of us who come at PEG through a gynecology perspective may not be um, as attuned to this particular issue. And I think that um, this, this study just brings to mind um, what, that we need to think about it. It's just a reminder to say that it is important. It's something to ask our patients about and that it's not, it's not the same as, as full-blown anorexia nervosa, um, but that uh, kids who may have quirky eating um, may really qualify for this, this what's the, a relatively new or new to us in gynecology as um, ARFID, avoidant restrictive. Yeah, so the ARFID's the abbreviation. I, it always catches me off guard too. So it's the avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So it's, it's kind of very common that we probably overlook, I think. So um, that's a great article just to highlight um, that in our clinics too, I agree. And then I would be remiss to not talk about the brilliant and wonderful wellness statement um, that's <laughs> close to my heart since the NASPEC Advocacy Committee worked diligently on this. Um, and it's a really great wellness statement uh, published in our JPAG journal and it's been online on NASPAG. And I think it was very timely with the early parts of COVID, just talking about the definitions of physician burnout and some really nice diagrams um, of the, the many dimensions of wellness. And I, I know we talk a lot about wellness now in our various organizations and through our, our national and local committees, but I think it's, you know, it's something to really think about and explore for yourself and for your colleagues and I don't know. I, I know I talked to you a lot about this too, Dr. Hillard. It's, it's just never seemed like you've had problems with wellness or burnout. And, and so you probably have some good tips or pointers or mid-career advice. Well, I think you say we're talking about it a lot now. And I think at, at least at Stanford, we are, which is wonderful. I'm not sure that this discuss, same discussion is occurring everywhere. So if it's not happening at the institution that you happen to be at, if you're uh, one of our listeners, then, um, you know, it, it probably should be. Um, it's just heartening to me the extent to which it's a real legitimate conversation these days. This is not a conversation that about wellness that, that would have taken place when I was a resident or early in my academic career. Um, we didn't talk about these things, and it was often the elephant in the room. So um, I'm just I'm delighted that this um, statement from the advocacy um, committee at NASPAG um, is available to us. I think it's wonderful, and it's something. Um, if wellness is not 
prominently discussed at your institution, then take a look at this statement and maybe bring it to the attention of, of folks in your administration who might be able to help affect some changes to your department chair. That's yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. And certainly reach out. I mean, reach out to local colleagues. You can reach out to all of us at NASPAC and certainly us at JPAD, because I think sometimes just having a point of contact who recognizes and understands uh, is super, super helpful. And, and maybe just having that one person to go to, kind of like what we say for our young teens and, and adolescents, right? Having a trusted adult. Help. So it's, it's nice to have an organizational trusted adult. So for sure, we, we are there. Okay, Super. well, thank you. That was a, a great October podcast of our October edition. We're all really happy to have you as listeners. We and look forward to the next one. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Hillard. Thank you. Thank you.